HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome back to HRN on Tour. I'm Kat Johnson. I am here in the Culinary Village at Charleston Wine and Food Festival. We're going to be bringing you live food radio from 12 to 5 p.m. every day, today, Saturday, and Sunday. And right now, I'm very excited because our guest is Deep Tran. She's the chef owner of Good Girl Dinette in Highland Park, California. Welcome, Deep. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm super excited to talk to you. Before we start, I just want to say I'm a fan of Mike's smoked oysters. We had them yesterday, and I wanted like a tub of them. It was really, it was, they're magnificent. Um, So we just had Mike Lotta on from Fig. Go listen to his uh, interview all about his dish, smoked oysters, and how he got into food. But now we're going to talk to you about your restaurant, Good Girl Dinette. Tell me about the, the name and where that came from. Uh, the name, it's, it's just a playful name, and it just sets the tone for when you come into Good Girl Dinette. And, um, yeah, I didn't want it to be too serious. Well, we definitely are serious about the cooking, but we want it to be, like, a playful place, a neighborhood place, doesn't take itself too seriously. Um, and also, I think when people think of Vietnamese, the Vietnamese community, they kind of tend to, like, populate... Uh, the community with a lot of um, doleful stories, which we do have. So I wanted to have, like, you know, kind of have another kind of more playful aspect to the community than just um, like a, a refugee story, which, I mean, I, I am a refugee, so, sure. you know. So tell yeah. me about the menu and the, and the food you're serving there. Um, the concept is uh, an American diner, and uh, the idea of a, an American diner is it's your grandma's cooking, right? So what if your grandma is Vietnamese, is a dyke, went to farmer's markets? I mean, you know, like, if that's like her, you know, her background, then this is what the restaurant would look like. So we're very, uh, Jonathan Cold, Gold calls us a, a queer-centric restaurant. So anyway, that's... That's amazing. Yeah. Um, there's a specific rice rice dish inspired by your grandmother that's, I, th- I think you've mentioned it's a little bit unusual from what people might expect when they go to a Vietnamese restaurant. What exactly is that dish like? Okay, so it's akin to, like, say, a polenta. So it's a a starch. Instead of cooking rice, so it's just like, you know, perfectly cooked and fluffy, you put more water in there. So you you make it wetter. And then, you know, the old school way my grandma did was take a clean uh, pillowcase and put the rice in there and then knead it until it becomes like a, a dough. And then she would make into like logs, and then she would cut it with a piece of thread. So it's it's a consistency is very much like like grits, mm-hmm. you know. We're and in the south, yeah, right? To grits. You know, so I'm trying I'm trying to get the 
<laughs> you know, your reference point. You know, so it's uh, so it's and usually it's we really only had it um, on road trips because she would have all the rice uh, the rice cakes and then she would have like some sort of protein and then we would just sandwich the protein in with the, the rice cakes and it would be like a, a makeshift sandwich. Mm-hmm. So um, when I told my aunt that she asked me like, oh, what are you going to serve at the restaurant? And my aunt has owned um, and the family has owned restaurants since 2000, I mean, since 1982. And I said, oh, we're not going to do what you're doing at the <laughs> restaurant. She goes, okay, that's good. We're going to have a smaller menu. She goes, that's smart. And then I said, and we're going to serve but gum nam. And she goes, why would you want to serve gum nam? And, uh, which is the rice cakes. And um, because uh, I, I, I love it. And it's like, we all enjoy it. She goes, oh, it's too humble, you know, like, she was almost embarrassed for me. Like, don't do that. That's 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 a dumbass move. Well, what did she say after it took off and people loved it? Um, she um, when she came to the restaurant, it was like our first month. Uh, and my family, my relatives are very, they're very judicious with their praise. You know, uh, so she had she had the entire menu. It was my cousin uh, and my auntie and. She came to the back, and I'm, like, sweating like a pig. And she said, how did you get so good? So that was, like, okay, you know. So she got it. She got it. She realizes that we have all these. Another uh, dish we have is the pork confit, which is tikkabam. And usually you would have this caramelized pork. And I think Americans know this pork as, like, pork belly with an egg. And it's, you know, it's usually with coconut juice. It's very, it's, it's, it's a southern style of tikkabam. And uh, it's very, uh, it's kind of like when you, it's a little fancier, but the, the northern, which is my, I'm from North Vietnam, the northern way is with minced pork, it's a little saltier, it's not as sweet, there's no coconut juice in there, but it's like real peasanty. So my aunt said, don't serve that either, let's like keep that in the house. So I'm like, no, you, you'll get it when I serve it. And so she kind of got like, yeah, like just, I mean, in many ways, it, uh, in many ways it mirrors what food, ha- uh, the food like the the arc of food in America like the things that we thought weren't weren't worthy of any any um attention like we're like oh yeah that's really great that's part of our heritage and we should you know we should uphold that as you know we should put that to the forefront as much as these other uh, foods because I kind of think I I always explain it like I feel like the food my grand my uh my grandparents, my aunts and uncles um serve at rest- at the restaurants. It's kind of like Vietnamese American food. So it's the same as like Italian American food. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just a snapshot of 1972, 1975. You know when they left Vietnam, and so it's kind of it's a good snapshot of that. And you know I just wanted like I opened in 2009, so I want what does Vietnamese food look like in America in 2009. Yeah, so you were featured in a show called The Migrant Kitchen, uh, which is broadcasted in Southern California. and you, uh, you On were, the net, so worldwide. On the inter- <laughs> yes, because I saw it, so, and I was in New York. There you go. So you can find it on the internet. Um, on that show, you made the point that Vietnamese cuisine is fluid and defies a singular definition. So you're speaking to that a little bit, but can you elaborate more what that means? I believe all food is fluid. So I don't think, um, I, th- I, believe, I believe that food is culture, and culture is never static. Culture is, by definition, dynamic. You know, like it changes all the time. It's, it, it is like water. You cannot hold it. Mm-hmm. You know, you can have a taste of what it, t- you know, what it is, but you can't, you can't confine it. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what I mean. Uh, and I feel like some, we're, we're able to have some food be fluid, 
and some foods not. And usually in the framework of American um, uh, American POV, it's very much like immigrant food somehow needs to be static. And uh, it isn't, even if you try. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's not going to be because even the product, like uh, pork uh, raised in 2009 is very different than raised in the 70s, than raised in eight, the 1800s. So, you know, even then that that changes the, the, the very uh, ba- the basic elements of food, me- you know, meaning the ingredients. Mm-hmm. Um, so speaking of immigrant cuisines in, in America, you wrote a piece on NPR called Cheap Eats, Cheap Labor, The Hidden Human Costs of Those Lists. Can you explain the problem that you see with Cheap Eats lists and what you think we should do differently when writing about certain types of cuisines? Uh, yes, I think um, in some ways... Uh, Immigrant cuisine, the only time we talk about them or like we praise them is when they're so cheap. And so that that's that is just I feel like uh, from a standpoint of uh, like labor, I think that's if, if you I feel like suppress uh, suppress prices actually equate to suppress wages. And so really that in the end the impetus for writing that is to correct some of that and said, you know, if you pay people, if you pay more for the food, you know, hopefully that, you know, not, ho- now, not to say that higher price food equates higher wages, but there's a possibility because wage theft in America is, runs the gamut from fine dining restaurants down to the mom and pop. So, you know, I, I had a hard time thinking about how I wanted to couch that story. So it's not like, oh, immigrant restaurants is cheap labor. I think cheap labor is pervasive throughout the entire industry. But in order for us to even have an opportunity to raise wages, like think about like what, uh, you know, the, the places that you're insisting on them not um, uh, not raising their prices and, and also equating their value with just how low you, they can go. You know, and, uh, and then also that just creates like, then you only get, you'll, you'll, um, You'll uh, constrict the ability of certain cuisines to to be expansive, you know, by because it's a it's a it's a business. You gotta make it work somehow. And if you can't raise prices, you can't have these like very idiosyncratic, labor intensive dishes. So you you were mentioning that you are from a family of restaurateurs, mm-hmm. and was that something that you always thought you were gonna go into opening a restaurant one day, or were you like against it for a while? Um, I would never open it. No, I mean, yeah, I, um, I, I think I, I, I definitely felt like the square peg in my family, and I never felt uh, like I didn't ever want to follow in anybody's footsteps, you know. And I wanted to actually be um, an English professor oh. uh, focusing on Victorian literature that's, <laughs> and, and regency. That's pretty too. similar. It's pretty <laughs> yeah. similar to being a chef. Um, so, yeah, so that's what I thought I wanted to do, you know. Um, but um, you could not have, um, you know, they taught, they t- and they didn't want me to be in the restaurants either. They wanted me to be a doctor or pharmacist, dermatologist, whatever. <laughs> you want to run the medical field, you know, podiatrist, um, or get married to one, you know. And I was like, not doing any of that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, and I just thought, I know how hard it is to have a restaurant and how consuming it is. So I knew I couldn't have two careers or two simultaneous careers. And then I read uh, Emerson quoting from Whitman, and he said, like, you know, I contain multitudes. And I'm like, oh, my God, 
I can also contain multitudes. And so I thought, I'm going to give my best years. When, and I coined that by, I'm young. I'm not really worried about my health. <laughs> you know, like, uh, uh, I can live in a studio apartment with a Murphy bed. I wanted, like, I, want, I could live really lean. And I knew as the older I get, the older I got, I would probably want more creature comforts. So for 10 years, I worked in nonprofit. But when, before I started nonprofit, and right after I graduated college, I said, for 10 years, I'll do this. And in 10 years, I'll open a restaurant. And that's what I did. So I graduated in 94. And in 2004, I opened my first restaurant. So you, you do have background in nonprofit and social justice work, mm-hmm. correct? So how do you kind of see that background intersecting with the, your, your work as a chef now? I think, it, um, I think my context has changed, but my values have not changed. You know, I feel like I deepen, I, I, deepen my under, I deepen my understanding every day of, like, what social justice looks like. Um, but I don't think, you know, I don't think you wake up one day and you don't... If you cared about social justice the day before, <laughs> you wake up... I'm not, not into it anymore. Yeah, yeah, it's like, I'm done, you know? So I do, it, it permeates my life, you know, in, in all aspects. Mm-hmm. And I... Uh, my 10 years in social justice has trained me how to be a, an ethical employer. So tell me a little bit about the event that you're here in Charleston to do. Um, we're here uh, with, uh, on a panel uh, moderated by John T. And it's the business of food. And uh, I think we're exploring, we're pretty open, open-ended about it, but exploring um, kind of the contradictions mm-hmm. uh, in, in uh, the current state where we uh, hold food in such high esteem. And then at the same time, it's also an industry that leads in the lowest paid jobs and that uh, workers in restaurants uh, are more likely to access uh, public assistance. So, you know, or need to work two jobs, all that stuff. Like, how do you... I'm, I don't think it's how to reconcile it, but how do we examine Just start those? start to talk about it. Yeah, because yeah. I, I, for sure, we are not going to solve it, <laughs> this panel, so... But, yeah, to t- start thinking about it. And, like, how does a place like this that's... This festival, amazing, right? But it's, it's meant to feel good, so how do you, like, talk about these issues that eventually, if you kind of have some sort of conscience, it makes you feel a little bad, mm-hmm. you know? And how do you, how do you have these two, uh, two uh, not contradictory, but I don't know what, like, uh, they, they, they brush up against each other a little bit in sure. terms of, like, yeah, enjoy the food. Oh, labor, you know? Yeah, we got other things to think about at the same time. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, Deep, tell us about how we can find out more about Good Girl Dinette and on, both online and in person if people want to come eat your food. Uh, you can, uh, if you just want to look at good, uh, uh, pictures of food, you can find me on Instagram at goodgirldinette.com. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, and I, I love Instagram. That's my go-to. I'm on Twitter, too, at goodgirldinette mm-hmm. as well. But I, I really love the pictures, so... Yeah, you can find me there. Amazing. Well, Deep Tran, chef owner of Good Girl Dinette in Highland Park, California. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much, Kat. And we will be right back. I want to quickly thank our sponsors um, for our coverage of Charleston Wine and Food Festival, Springer Mountain Farms, Big Green Egg, Wisconsin Cheese, and the Julia Child Foundation. And up next, Eli Sussman's going to be back on the mic, and he's going to be talking to some very exciting chefs that are a part of the Williams-Sonoma Chef Collective. So stay tuned. We'll be right back.